0: Good morning and welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's good to have you with us this morning. And I want you all to know right out of the shoot, I don't know why this happened, but a pair of cat slippers as a gift appeared just in front of me up here. Uh, And I hope some kid really enjoys them. (laughs) Well, we're in a series that we're calling For Everyone, and we're making our way through the New Testament letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, and we kind of come to a, a break point this morning. It's kind of like you ever watching an NFL game on Fox and you get a game break, right? What that means is they're breaking into your game to let you know what's going on around the league in one of the other games. And uh, I don't know about you, but for somebody that doesn't have much patience like me, I love a game break. You can see what's happening in a matter of seconds rather than have to sort through all of the game. Well, this season, kind of comes as a game break to the normal routines of life. And so Christmas intrudes as a game break. But we thought rather than use that as as an excuse or get kind of ticked off at that, we would leverage the game break and say, all right, we've looked at seven chapters of the book of Romans. Let's kind of tie that together this morning. And then we will come back in the new year and pick up with chapter eight. Probably not picking up every chapter, but picking up some of the key ideas from Romans 8, Romans 12 and some of the other material there, which means our mission this morning is to tie together, to recap, to review some of what we've looked at in Romans 1 through 7. And so if you've been tracking with us, uh, you know that we've been looking at Romans for 13 weeks. Some think, man, it seems like forever. Others say, oh, no, it's been too short. Somebody sent me a text a few weeks ago. There was one church and one preacher that preached through the book of Romans for 47 years. I I shared that with somebody and they said, boy, that's deep. I said, no, that's weird. (laughs) I'm not sure there's 47 years worth of stuff. Yeah, we'll never plumb the depths of that. But God gave us a whole bunch of other stuff beside what's there. Romans is significant and important. And that's why we're taking so much time to look at it, but not 47 years. We've got other things to look at, too. Well, in our game break, here was my strategy. I sat down at my computer, uh, first thing Monday morning, and I began to read through all of my notes from the past 13 weeks, and I was on a mission, and here was my mission. What are some things that, as I'm reading through my notes, seem really significant, but we never got around to talking about? There were a couple of those. And what are some things that are really significant, and I just know you all forgot already? So what are some things we need to review and what are some things we need to kind of look at anew in looking at Romans 1 through 7? So that's our mission today. Well, first of all, I want to look at this whole idea of idolatry and try to put that together in perspective, in kind of Romans perspective and in biblical perspective. So here's idolatry. Here's how I started thinking about this. If you were here last week, you know that we looked at the end of Romans chapter 7. And Romans chapter 7 is all about the law. And in the law, we talked a lot about the purpose or purposes for which God gave the law. And we came up with a number of them. We said, God gave the law to define sin. The law kind of outlines what's in bounds and out of bounds, it defines sin. Secondly, we said, God gave the law in order to reveal sin, not just define sin theoretically but reveal sin in us. It's really inside, but not just reveal sin in us, reveal the depth of sin in us. It's pretty deep seated. It's way down in there. So it reveals that we're guilty. We're kind of you know, living outside the bounds often and it runs pretty deep in us. Thirdly, we said in some weird way, the law provokes sin. It kind of entices us to sin. You know, just like when you're told to not do something, that makes you want to do it. Well, the law says, yeah, you got all these don't do's. Well, you kind of feel like you want to do it then. But then we said and emphasized, but the law was never intended. It was never given for the purpose of forgiving sin or gaining us acceptance with God once we have failed. So we can't look to the law to do what it was never designed to do. It's great at defining sin and revealing sin and provoking sin, but it's not designed to forgive sin. So you can't go to the law, create a little to-do list, a checklist, and then try as hard as you can to do it, somehow working off all the bad junk you've done. That was never the purpose. But in that, in Paul's discussion of the law, um, there's this one really weird section when he takes one of the Ten Commandments out of the list and he focuses on it. Remember that? And the commandment that he chose is the 10th command. The command is, do not covet. All right, so here's how Paul says it. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was, had it not been for the law, right, define and reveal. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. And I mentioned last week that coveting is different from the first nine commands. You can understand, not legitimately, but you can understand commands one through nine in a superficial external way. For example, don't make an idol. You're not making an idol. You're good on that one, right? Honor your father or mother, right? You Call your mom once in a while, send them a birthday card, Mother's Day, but you're good on that one tell the truth, worship God on the Sabbath, Um, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't tell lies, they're all, you can understand, not legitimately, but you can illegitimately understand one through nine in an external superficial way. And in a sense, that's probably Paul's history. If you remember, Paul was a Pharisee, which meant Pharisees were experts in the law But as you read how they put it together in the Gospels, there was a superficial and an external component to that where they kind of drew up a list, and if they checked the right items, they kind of thought they were doing okay. So Paul says, when I thought of the law externally and superficially, I was alive to the law. I thought I was doing really well. But then I came to commandment number 10. You shall not covet. You know what? You don't covet on the outside. Coveting is purely on the inside. Coveting is not superficial. Coveting is not external. Coveting is on the inside and is kind of, coveting is deep. Here's what coveting says. God, I don't like what you've given me. I'm not content with what you've given me. In fact, if you knew what you were doing, you would have given me different stuff, more stuff you would have given me what that person has rather than what I have. But that's pretty sinister, right? It's deep and it's internal. So Paul says that tenth command was almost like a light that went on and the light switched on and all of a sudden I realized I'm guilty because the law's not external and the law's not superficial. Well, maybe Paul was reflecting on what Jesus said because Jesus won't allow those superficial external interpretations. <clears throat> if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes a couple of the commandments, and he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you're angry in your heart towards someone, you've broken the command. Because the same root that produces the act of murder produces the emotion of anger. He then says, you've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. And there were lots of people who said, oh, I always sleep in the right bed. I'm good on that one. But then Jesus says, but if you lust in your heart, you're guilty of breaking the command. Jesus won't allow those superficial external interpretations. But number 10 opens the door to seeing all of the commands in a deep, penetrating way. So Paul says, when I thought about number 10 and the internal nature of the command and how it's not just external and superficial. I died to the law, I realized I was guilty. Now it's kind of interesting. If you were to marry what Paul says there to a couple verses that he mentions at the beginning of the book. So if you have your Bibles, your phone, your tablet, your computer, whatever you're using, call up Romans chapter one. And I'm gonna read beginning of verse 18. And I'll read through verse 23 and see if you remember the process that I mentioned back then and see if you see any similarities between what Paul wrote there and what he tells us in Romans 7. All right, so here we go, Romans 1:18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles." Now if you read that last verse, you realize that what Paul's talking about there is idolatry. These people are making images, they're making idols that look like people, that look like animals that look like other created things, they're bowing down and worshiping those things. Now that's idolatry. But when we looked at that passage like 12 weeks ago, I mentioned that there's a whole process that Paul wrote there. So here was the process. I know you don't remember. Here was the process. Step one, suppression. They suppress the truth of God. So God's sending all this revelation, revelation in creation, revelation in his word, God's revealing himself. But rather than receiving it, and being caught short by it, rather than allowing God's word to penetrate, they're suppressing it. They're pushing it down. They're not dealing with it. They're kind of hiding it so they don't have to deal with it. If you suppress some of the data, you now end up with a distorted view. Suppression always leads to distortion. If you're not working with all the data, you're not gonna come to the right decision. Suppression, distortion. Thirdly then, rejection. You reject God because you've got a distorted view of who he is. And if you distort who he is, who in their right mind would follow a God like that who doesn't have your best interest in mind, who's out to kind of get you and make your life miserable? Suppression, distortion, rejection. So we reject God from his rightful place. Well, then do we just kind of live with a vacuum in the middle? We're not kind of following, serving? No, no, no. We then transfer or put something else in the center, substitution. That's what idolatry results in. It begins with suppression of what God says. We then have a distorted view. We reject God and following him. We then put something else. We substitute something else in the place that God should have. That's what idolatry is, putting anything, anyone, anything in the place that God should hold in your life. That is how the process works. Interestingly, isn't Paul saying, if you link together Romans 1 and Romans 7, that process that I wrote about the people far from God in Romans 1, I lived that same process as a Jew seeking to follow God. God revealed himself to me, but I suppressed what the commands fully meant I then had a distorted view of what they were. I rejected what God wanted in my life. I then substituted something else. I substituted my resume, my list, my performance, doing what I thought I could do to earn God's favor. I went through the same process that they did. That's kind of enlightening, isn't it? Now, here's a little model that's been uh, helpful to me. And so uh, I want to share it with you. Here's how it works. Let's begin by kind of backing up from Romans, and talk about our world. Everything in your life. All right, can you do So just think. Everything. So right now, we are in each other's worlds. For better or worse, we're in your world. Your wife or husband's in your world. Your kids are in your world. Your parents are in your world. Your aunts and uncles are in your world. Your grandparents are in your world. Your grandkids in your world. All those relationships are in your world. Your neighbors are in your world. Your car's in your world. Your house is in your world, even with the leaky refrigerator. Your house is in your world. Your washer and dryer are in the world. Your job's in your world. The money you have or don't have is in your world, right? Your vacation home, if you have one, is in the world. All those things are in your world. Everything you can think of is in your world. Your job, the people there, your retirement, everything in your world. You got that? Now, we are not passive in our worlds. We are active in our worlds which means we produce fruit that we put into play into our world. Now, fruit comes in three varieties Uh, when it comes to people, you and me. Fruit comes in the form of thinking, thoughts, feelings, and actions. All of your behaviors, fruit. All of your emotion, fruit. All of your thoughts, fruit. Got it? So any thoughts that you have, that's a fruit, right? You're putting that into play. Now here's kind of a weird thing. The fruit that you produce becomes something in the person next to you in their world. And the fruit they're producing becomes something in your world. See how we're connected into this kind of web of existence where we're living connected to each other. So our fruit comes into play into the world and other people have to process that. But here's where we often live in contradiction to what the Bible says. We process this in a very non-biblical way. I'll give you a couple of examples. You make me so mad! Biblically speaking, that's impossible. World does not produce or cause fruit. Never, never. The Bible would say world doesn't make fruit. World can influence, world does not produce fruit. If you say or live something like that, you are saying something that's contrary to the Bible from beginning to end. People can't make you angry. They can't make you happy. No, no, that's not how it works. Our language betrays the fact that we live contrary to what God says. And here's why that's important. Suppression leads to distortion. We often live with this distorted idea that we go through life and everything we do and feel and think is influenced or caused by people outside. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, here's what the Bible says heart causes fruit every time. Think of a tree. The fruit is not produced in a vacuum. In fact, the Bible likes metaphors that sound like this. Remember, Jesus said, A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. The fruit is caused by what the tree is rooted in. Psalm 1. The tree planted by streams of water will be fruitful and flourishing regardless of how hot it is on the outside. The heat does not cause the fruit to be produced or not. Where the tree is rooted produces the fruit. See how that works? So what does that mean? Well, after the first somebody after the first service, somebody said, "Well, Taurus, here's what I was thinking of. Um, suppose somebody has a glass of water and they're walking very carefully. Because, or Starbucks is better, right? So, Stacy over here at Starbucks filled my instead of brim and she forgot to put the lid on. I'm walking very carefully, trying not to spill it, and I'm very nervous. I don't want to spill it, and make a mess, especially in the church. Then they have to come in and clean it. I'm embarrassed. So, person comes in and they and they shake and the stuff spills out. Stuff spills out all over the floor. What caused?" The coffee to make a mess on the floor? Not the fact that you were bumped. The fact the coffee was in the cup, that's what caused it to spill. That's what the Bible says. It's what's inside of you already. That when you're bumped or jostled in the world, spills out. But the world didn't cause the coffee to be in the cup. The world didn't put all that junk on the inside. The world may be the cause for it to be splashed, but it's not the cause of putting it in there. We make that mistake all the time. So think of it this way. If you think of a simple example, it works too. Some of you get ticked off and angry every Sunday morning when you come to church. I don't mean because you have to sit here, maybe you do that too. You pull in, and maybe you're angry already because people aren't ready to get here on time, and you're late, and that means you always have to park all the way down near the volleyball court, down to the thing, and it's freezing cold this morning, you got to walk that long distance to church. Like, what the heck? Okay, well, why are you angry? Are you really angry because you had to walk? No, you're angry because... You like to what write the script of how your life should go. You like to park close and sit far, right? You want, to park, you want to sit way in the back. And if somebody's in your seat, you're ticked off about that too, right? You see, if you keep asking why, you'll discover the junk that's already in the cup. The opportunity for it to spill out may be when somebody bumps you, but the junk is already in the cup. And jostling just causes it to spill out, but it's already in there. Um, maybe it's that you value your time, your energy, the fact that you're not going to be cold. How about some of you that never like to be late for anything? Right? I'm, I'm in that camp. I hate being late. But why do I really hate to be late? Do I hate to be late honestly because I don't want to infringe on other people's time. I want to. Rest- no, no, no. I want them to see me as being organized, having my act together. I, I can organize life so that I'm there in plenty of time to spare. And I'm certainly there before you. See how that works? It's what's inside. Now, in our hearts, here's what's in our, in our hearts. We value, we love, we trust, and we find our identity. That's heart stuff. So the Bible would say it like this. What you really love, when that is taken away from you, that's what causes you to be angry. What you're trusting in, if that's removed, that's what causes anxiety where you find your identity, if that's shaking, that's what causes your life to go out of kilter. It's what we're rooted in that causes the junk in fruit. It's not what's in the world. That is a biblical anthropology. That's how the Bible puts it together. And that's exactly what Paul says. But here's the problem. Since sin starts on the inside, but produces fruit on the outside. It starts on the inside, it's rooted on the inside, but manifests itself on the outside. When we see the manifestation of bad fruit in our lives, guaranteed, that's because we're rooted in something inappropriate and toxic. It's not the world that's causing it, it's what we're rooted in. Now, if you kind of carefully worked your way through Romans one to seven, I know you did homework. If you carefully worked your way through you realize that Paul likes to play with the already-not-yet kind of picture. So let me use our little metaphor to describe that. If you have swapped your resume for Jesus and you are now following him, you are already rooted in Jesus, and you are therefore bearing some good fruit. But you are not yet completely rooted in Jesus. Therefore, you are producing some toxic bad fruit. We are all a combination of bad fruit, good fruit producing trees, because if you're a follower of Jesus, you are already in Him, but you're not yet completely in Him. So we're producing like two crops, one good and one toxic. See how that works? And what Paul's calling us to in 1 through 7 is initially to get rooted in Jesus and then to consider and count and reflect so that we move more fully our root structures into him. That's how the process works. That's how the Bible understands how we function. So we should not be primarily encouraging people or ourselves to trade fruit. You know, the guts of the Christian life is not stop that, start that. That's not Christianity. That's Phariseeism Christianity is. Yeah, I'm producing bad fruit because I'm rooted into something other than Jesus in the gospel. Therefore, I need to, here's a bad word, right? I need to repent, turn from what I'm rooted in to turn to being more rooted in him. That transfer will wind up producing more good fruit. Repentance is primarily at that heart root level not at the, now again, we do need to repent at the fruit level, but that should be a sign telling us to go deeper on the inside, just like Paul describes sin as being inside and deep. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's been saying. That's the dynamic of idolatry. Now, here's how it works. We're not, you know, we're we're all half bright, you know, kind of people. We're We're not really dumb. What do we promote to something in that heart area? So if idols reside in the heart, How do we get the stuff there? Well, since we're bright, we experience good gifts in our world, right? Lots of good gifts in the world. God gave us lots of good gifts. They were meant to be experienced and enjoyed as good gifts. But when we take a good gift and promote it at the root level to our God, we have become idolaters. Those good gifts are really good gifts. They're lousy gods. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 1? So, for example, human beings are good. They're made in God's image, but they're lousy gods. When you promote a human being to the God place, now you've got an idol. How about reptiles? I don't particularly like reptiles, but what does Paul say? Reptiles are good gifts, but when you promote that to the God gift or you promote it to a God thing, you've become an idolater. When you take something else in the world, a good gift, and you promote it to a God thing, your life is going to be ruined. So let's use that some things from our world. How about money money's a good thing the bible never says money is bad the bible doesn't say that money's the root of all evil it doesn't say that the bible says the love of money where do you love in your heart so what happens we take the good gift of money in our world we promote it to the god thing in our hearts and that god thing of money will destroy your life with lots of bad fruit how about sex sex is a good gift god gave it he invented it But when you take that good gift in the world and you promote it to a God thing in your heart, you will now do anything anywhere to get the pleasure you want. You've now created an idol that will ruin your life. There's the process. And Paul says, it's not just the filthy, creepy people far from God that do this. I've done this myself. This is my history as well as their history. This paradigm of idolatry is part and parcel of the human condition because we worship in our hearts, but we must worship something. If we reject God and we substitute something for God in our hearts, you are worshiping that thing, but only God can hold the weight and freight of our worship. When you worship something other than him, all of life is now going to be ruined. That's the process. Well, how, does, how can we work that out? How do we fight that battle, wage that war. Well, interestingly, Paul kind of does that. And I'm going to look at it this way. I I did what you did. I asked you guys to read Romans 1 through 7. I did the same thing. I read through most 1 through 7 almost every day. And I did something you probably didn't do. I don't know why, but on Monday morning, first thing, I you know what? I'm going to highlight every time the word but appears. And here's what I discovered. You can see the gospel in the buts. If you want to know the gospel, you just look at the buts. Because the gospel is in the buts. So let me explain what I mean. The first verse I want to look at is from Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall shorty, glory of God. But right before that, Romans 3.21 says this. But now. There it is. But now. And the word but appears like dozens of times in these seven chapters. It's pretty cool. We're not going to look at them all. Just a few. But now. 3, 3.21. But now. Apart from the law... A righteousness from God has been revealed. What's God said? Paul says, yeah, look, I figured this out. But I was living my life trying to compose my own righteousness resume. I was trying to put the right items on so that I would gain acceptance. I'm doing things that have doors swing open for me. And I was writing my own performance resume. And I was failing miserably. When the light went on, I understand all about sin. I realized my resume was, did not have commendation. It had commendation. But God revealed a righteousness resume as a gift, not through performance. Wow, the gospel in the but. Here's another one, Romans 5:8. But God, here we are again, demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What did it take for God to swap resumes? Yeah, here's what it took. Jesus just couldn't write on a piece of paper, here's some good deeds and give it to you. He couldn't live a really good life. and get No, Jesus, in order to pay the debt we owe, we've earned the wages, we deserve the wages of death. Jesus had to die to pay that, and he had to live this perfect life to give us his resume. And in the context of Romans 5, 8, Paul says this. Now If you look around, you may find some really good people out there and you know, some pretty good people, right? Um, Occasionally someone may be willing to die for somebody that's good, but I don't know anybody Paul says that would die for their arch enemy. I mean, who would die for a Cowboys fan? Like what? Um, But, but God demonstrates his love for us while we were still enemies. We're running from him as fast as we can. Jesus died for us when we're living out our enemy. That makes no sense. That's, that's how you get your heart rooted in the right place. We have one more. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. What did we earn and deserve? Death, not just physically dying, right? Death in the Bible does not mean ceasing to exist, so when you know, our first ancestors, when they ate from the tree, they didn't cease to exist. Death in the Bible means separation. When you die physically, you are separated from all of the stimuli on this planet, but you continue. When, when Adam and Eve first ate and when we live out the wages of our sin, we are separated from a life of connecting with God, we're separated from God. And when you check out, you're separated from life in this world. So. The gift of God is life in place of death. We've earned and deserved death, separation from God, from life forever. But the gift of God is life, not just a quantity, but a quality of life forever and ever. See the gospel in the butts. So when you and I see some bad fruit being produced in our lives, that should cause us to say, okay, time out. I need to ask why. Why am I angry? Why am I so anxious? Why am I dealing with this? Why, is, why are these words coming out of my mouth? Why are these thoughts? Why are these feelings? That are, why, 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 why? The why should drive you from the fruit to the root. And when you get to the root, ask yourself the hardest question. What are you loving? What are you valuing? What are you trusting? Where are you finding your identity other than Jesus? That's the real problem. We were built to be rooted in Him. When we're rooted in anything else, all hell breaks loose in our world, and actions and feelings and thoughts get out of kilter. We put them into play, and we experience them from other people. How do we wrestle with that? By considering and counting, going back and looking at the butts, when we read through Romans 1 1 through 7 or anything else in the Bible. What's it tell us about God? What's it tell us about me? And how is it moving me to Jesus? That's what the assignment is to do this. But that brings us to one last thing. We were designed for mission. Designed for mission. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you know, not a whole lot of mission stuff in Romans. I haven't seen a whole lot of. That's because we're not looking at it properly. In fact, from beginning to end, the letter to Romans is all about mission. And I can show you with two simple references. Here's the first one. The beginning of Romans starts like this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Now, the word apostle is actually a Greek word transliterated, not translate, transliterated into English. Apostle is not an English word. It's a Greek word just written in English letters. What does the word apostle mean? Apostle means someone who is sent. So what does Paul say? Okay, I'm a servant of Jesus and I've been called to be sent. And you've heard me say this before. If you've been here any length of time at all. God never, ever, ever calls anyone in without sending them out. Abraham, come on in, now get the heck out. David, come on in, now go out. Peter, come on in, now go. Paul, come on in, now go. It's always like in out all the time. So Paul is an apostle, he's sent. So Paul writes the letter in mission. Oh yeah, but if you look at the end of Romans, you'll discover why he wrote the letter. So here's what he writes in chapter 15. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, so he's writing to Rome saying, hey, I wanna visit you. Why does he wanna visit? So that I can visit you on my way to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, let me tell you the context of Romans. Paul wrote Romans while he was on his third missions trip. We know from the book of Acts, he took three missions trip. He writes Romans from the third mission trip. He actually writes it from a city named Corinth on his... What's he doing on this mission? Well, he's kind of letting people know about Jesus and talking about the gospel. Hey, be rooted in him, etc. But he's also collecting money from the Gentiles. So he's traveling around Asia Minor, collecting money from the Gentiles to deliver back to the Jews in Jerusalem. Why is he doing that? Well, because the Jews in Jerusalem that became Christians are finding it really difficult to live. They've lost their jobs, lost their Land lost, lots of relationships, business contacts, networks, everything. So Paul says, "Hey, as I share the good news of what Jesus has done with the Gentiles, I'm collecting money and I'm taking it back to the Jewish Christians in Rome, and I'm going to deliver it so they'll have life a little easier." Now, think about that: collecting money from the Gentiles to support the Jew. I talk about mission, right? But while he's on that trip, he writes a letter to Rome. What's the purpose of the letter? I'm coming to visit. Why is he coming to visit? Because his goal is to go to Spain. But Spain is all the way on the other end of the Mediterranean. The supply chain would have been too long from Jerusalem or Antioch to Spain. So Paul, being a great strategist, says, "Huh, I need a base of operations closer to Spain. Oh, I see on the map, Rome is halfway there. So I'm going to send a letter to Rome in which I introduce myself and introduce my message about Jesus, telling them when I come to visit, I want to establish a supply chain so that when I go to Spain on my mission, the supply chain will be half the distance it was from Jerusalem. It's all about mission, right? Now you may be thinking, well, big deal. That's Paul. No, 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 no. We were built for this. We were built to be rooted in Jesus and built for mission. Let me give you a couple of examples. You ever go to the airport and you know, kind of look out the windows, waiting for your? But you have to get there like nine hours before. It's nasty, right? I mean, I hate traveling. You go through security, it takes forever. You get there, watch the planes. You ever notice is the planes are kind of driving around on the runway, making it out to the runway, getting in line. They are lumbering monstrosities on the ground, aren't they? I mean, these big giant things, they, they need lots of wingspan to get by. you got to be careful, little guys with the flags in the back. I mean, they are lumbering, awkward monstrosities, as long as they're on the ground. <laughs> yeah, but you take that lumbering monstrosity that barely gets around, doesn't go that fast, yeah, you, enjoy, roar, and you move five feet, and yeah, you take that lumbering, awkward monstrosity, and you put it at 30,000 feet, and it flies with ease and elegance, doesn't it? You turn that wheel a little bit and that giant airplane just with great grace tilts to the side. You push forward, I think is it. Right, you push forward, the houses get bigger, right? You pull back, they get smaller. And, and you have this great, they fly with elegance and grace and be, lumbering monstrosities on the ground that take up too much room, getting everybody else's way. But at 30,000 feet, that's what they were designed for. That's elegance. Here's another one. You ever see... Um, those America's Cup sailboats. Uh, last time uh, we were in Bermuda, the Oracle boat, that, that was the America's Cup, was there practicing. And I was thinking about that, you know, what would that Oracle America's Cup sailboat look like in your pool? It'd be a mess, right? First of all, it wouldn't fit. Half it would be sticking out. The keel would have it crooked on the side. The mast would be laying on your roof. Um, it would be a mess, right? So you have to call people in to break it up and clean it up. It's a mess. Yeah, but boy, you take that Oracle ship and you put it off the coast of Bermuda. You hoist the sails and watch that ship lift out of the water and you can barely keep up in a motorboat next to it. When it's in the environment it was designed for, it's beautiful. Take a a Lamborghini. Put it on the Schuylkill Expressway at rush hour. Wasn't built, but you give me that Lamborghini for a weekend. I'll show you what it was built for, for the open road with hairpin turns, right back and forth racing. It wasn't built to be stuck in traffic on the blue route or the Schuylkill. It was built for the open road with Charles in the driver's seat. That's (laughs) right. I think that that's kind of what Paul's saying as you make your way through Romans guys, we were built designed and built to be rooted in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. That's what you were built for. And if you're not rooted and you're not in, you're like a lumbering monstrosity making its way to the runway. You're like a giant sailboat stuck in a stream somewhere. You're like a Lamborghini that can't get out of the driveway. But if you're rooted in Jesus and your mission is to continue what he started, You're flying at 30,000 feet with the ease of an airplane. You're sailing on America's Cup winning ship with the ease of the open water. And you're like a Lamborghini on the open road, taking hairpin turns like nothing. That's what we're designed and built for. That's the point. So Paul says, where are you rooted? What are you living for? Are you lumbering on the runway? Are you stuck in a pool or a creek? Are you stuck in traffic? Make sure you're rooted in Jesus. Make sure you're continuing what he started in mission, because that is what you were designed and built for. That's what Romans is about. Live out your design and live in mission with Jesus. Now, I'm going to close, but we're not done. Because if I remember correctly, you had a homework assignment. So I'm going to pray. We'll end the message. Then we're going to talk about the homework. So while I'm praying, the band will come back. The band's going to sing while you complete your assignment. So let's pray. Father, thanks for these reminders uh, through Paul. And in some way, thanks for Paul living in microcosm, the story of the Bible, and thanks for Paul's life echoing our lives to some degree. But Lord, help us not just to see the similarities. Help us to follow his example as we root our hearts more deeply in Jesus and continue what he started more faithfully and with more diligence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me ask, we're among friends, and if you didn't complete your, sur- your assignment, you deserve it. How many of you read Romans 1 through 7 this past week, whether in one sitting or not? Raise your hand. Very good, very good, nine of you. Some of you, many of you. (laughs) I asked you to answer three questions as you read through a chapter a day. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about people? And how does this point us to Jesus? The whole purpose of that assignment was to live out what Paul tells us and what we talked about today. In fact, those three questions should guide our Bible reading every time we read. I gave you that assignment. And we talked about that assignment as a staff because we realize nothing happens by you sitting, listening to sermons. Nothing really happens, you even sitting, reading the Bible. It happens when you internalize, personalize, and make your story connect to that story. When we read our lives into that story, that's where transformation happens. Those questions help us read our story into the big story. Well, as you were reading, maybe this past week, maybe this morning, maybe the past few months to one degree or another, or maybe it's been longer than that, but you never had an opportunity to kind of go public yet. One of the things that Paul calls us to, and one of the things that is kind of step one in this whole adventure, is you need to make the swap. Make the swap. We live going through life composing our own resumes, and Jesus comes and offers you his resume and he offers to take yours. My question is have you made the swap? Have you taken your resume of condemnation and given it to Jesus? And have you taken his commendation resume to yourself? That's step one. If you've never made the swap, you can make the swap right now. That's what Paul says. What are you rooted in? Change your root structure. Change what you're rooted in. Make the swap. Your resume for Jesus. If you've done that this morning, this past week, reading Romans, over the past couple of months, but you never kind of went public, today's your day to do that. I'll tell you what to do in a minute. There are others of you that you've been tracking with us for a few weeks and Maybe the pictures are different. The language is different, but the message is still the same. You're feeling compelled and you've made a commitment to live on the other side. For the last few weeks, I've been saying what Paul does in this middle section of Romans, he keeps painting a before and an after picture, and he uses lots of different images, lots of different examples before, after, before, after. Have you committed and are you determined to live on the other side to live out the after picture? knowing it's not perfect, right? We're still kind of rude, we're trying to, but we're committed to considering and reckoning and counting and calculating at that heart root level, making sure we're rooted in him. And when we're producing bad fruit, we call ourselves short, we ask why, and we go back and examine the roots. Are you committed to doing that? To live on the other side? If so, I'll tell you what to do in a minute. And one last group. Now, uh, I don't have any of you particularly in mind And I don't mean this as a critique necessarily in any way. Some of you deserve to be doing exactly what you're doing. But there are others of you that have been spectators far too long. You need to move from the bleachers onto the playing field. Nothing wrong. If you're still spectating, at it. that's fine. If you're spectating and that's where you should be, we're glad you're a spectator. You come and you participate to whatever degree you want. But others of you, and my guess is right now, you know who I'm talking to. You've been in the bleachers. You've been in the seats way too long. When we talk about serving at one and inviting, yeah, yeah, maybe that's for somebody else. It's time for you to move on to the playing field. Well, if you're ready to make that decision, I'm going to tell you three groups what to do. When you came in, You should have received the For Me card. Do you have those? Take it out. You're going to need it. Take it out. And some of you probably received the card and they say, oh, my goodness, how arrogant, how proud. This series is for everyone, not just for me. Yeah, but you know what? Step one in making the swap, you've got to realize the gospel is not just for everyone. The gospel is for me. And if you've never come to that decision, maybe this morning's is the point you need to come to. Maybe you have come to that point. Reading Romans this week. Maybe you've come to that point during this series. Maybe you have over the summer. Maybe you did it this past year, but you never really went public. You know, kind of holding it in. Don't want people to know. Well, if the gospel is not just for everyone, but you know it's for me, I'm going to ask you, and the band sings one last song and we join them. I'm going to ask you to take your card. And if you want, you don't have to. You can write your name on the back. And you'll notice we've got a bunch of lines, like, kind of like laundry lines around the room. we got them in the back and we got them on the sides. And if you made the swap, this gospel is not just for everyone, it's for me. You take that card and you go over and you'll find some clothespins on the line or you'll find a bucket with clothespins on the, floor, on the floor. You take a clothespin and you hang it up and you say, Jesus, thank you. What you've done is not just for everyone, it's for me. And if you're in that second group, and you've been kind of living more on the first side, the before side, and the after side, but, but you're done with that before side. You're making a commitment to live on the other side. You've done that this morning and in a recent past, and it's going to help you to do something physical to remind yourself and other people, you, you take your card, and if you want, you write your name on it too, and you go over to those lines, and you say, you know, Jesus, this morning I commit to living on the other side, the after side, by living in mission with you, and you hang your card there. And for the last group, those of you that have been spectating, maybe right now you're saying, you know what? Out of the bleachers for me. I'm on the playing field. I'm not even sure what that means yet, but I'm moving out of the stands onto the playing field. You take your card and you hang it on one of the lines and say, Jesus, since you've done all this for me, now I will live for everyone just like you did. The band's going to sing Living Hope. The lyrics of that song just retrace the story of the gospel, the story that Jesus lived for me, for you, for everyone. And as that story in the song comes out of your lips and resonates in your heart, whatever your commitment is in those three categories, as we're singing, You put your card on one of the lines and say, Jesus, you lived for me. Now I'm going to live for you. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that the gospel is about Jesus, not us, and it's for me and it's for everyone, and now you want us to continue that by living for you and for everyone too. Lord, I pray that as we sing, the words would be real and true in our hearts and on our lips And may we experience a picture of transformation as people in our community that we call Calvary put little cards on a line as we remind ourselves to put our lives in your hands because that's where they belong. That's what we were designed for. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Will you stand?